Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. When I was 18 years old, one of my best friends, uh, his dad, gave me a set of motivational talks on cassette tape by well-known motivational speaker Zig Ziglar. And this was one of the concepts that he taught, that anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Because anything that's really worth doing at all, you can't possibly begin doing well. In fact, in, in order to ever excel, it means that you'll have to do it poorly when you start. The Christian life is this way. When we first become Christians, whether as a child or an adult, there are things that, that we have to learn about this new way of being, of, of loving neighbor and putting others first, of, of loving our enemies, reliance on God over self. These are not natural ways of being. And for most of us, if we're honest, they still feel unnatural. The life of faith is one in which God is is continually pulling us forward. We don't ever in this lifetime ever arrive. God is continually, if we are paying attention, calling us to do better. Where is God calling you to do better today? Where are you growing? Lent is a season for for us to consider what we are doing poorly now in order that we can learn to do them well later because anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. And we'll explore that idea more today through a story from chapter 17 in the book of Exodus. And I invite you to turn there now. Here, God has rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And they've embarked on on their own process of growth, learning to be God's people out here in the desert, out in the wilderness. In chapter 14, preceding today's text, the The Red Sea is parted, and the Israelites cross the sea on dry land. They've been saved from the pursuing Egyptian army. And then chapters 15, 16, and 17 catalog three different stories about the discontentedness of the Israelites. They are grumbling about their circumstances, even raising the question to Moses and to God, wouldn't it have been better if you had just left us in Egypt. So friends, let's read today, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 17. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me, and why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? 
So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our story this morning does three things. First, it, it reveals something to us about the reality of our human perception. It reveals something to us about God's desire to be in relationship with us. And it reveals that for each of us, our wandering away from God It's all rooted in some personal version of the same lie we all tell ourselves. First, it reveals something about the reality of our human perception. I think on the surface, one of the first questions that the passage invites us to ask is how could they be so ungrateful? How could they have so little faith that their needs would be met after, after what they've experienced? These are the rescued people of God, saved from one of the great empires of the world. They've experienced this miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. Shouldn't they have a deeper sense of what God can do and does do to care for them? So how is it that they become so discontent with God so quickly after their rescue from Egypt? Why do they begin to doubt and to grumble? What's the basis for their complaint? They're dying of thirst. They're experiencing great physical discomfort here. In chapter 15, it's also that they are thirsty. In chapter 16, it's that they are hungry. They're concerned for their own needs, and as their discomfort increases and their needs become more acute, their perspective narrows. All they can see is is what is right in front of them. Their memory becomes incredibly short. I'd like for you to consider this morning, when... When have your circumstances prompted you to consider that God is not faithful? That God is not good? When has your perspective narrowed such that all you can see is right here? Debbie Sims spent years leading our children's chapel. She's still a member here um, If you came to the Christmas concert, you may have eaten some chocolate chip cookies. Debbie Sims helps us make those. It's her recipe. And I was talking with her this past week, and and she taught me this lesson that she used to teach our young people. Why don't everybody take your hands? Hold them up. 
and I want you to make a telescope and hold it over an eye. And I'd like you to have a look at your neighbor. I'd like you to have a look at the sanctuary around you to see what you see through this narrow perspective. And now drop your hands and look around. Friends, this is the human perspective, and this is what God sees. Even in an age where, where so much knowledge is just a Google search away, the chasm between what is knowable and all that is unknowable is still an infinite expanse. And it is a seductive illusion that our perspective is greater than it actually is. Second, this story reveals something to us about God's desire to be in relationship with us. After the Israelites are rescued from slavery in Egypt, they, they, they don't go straight to the land that is promised to them, to the land of, of Canaan, to the land of milk and honey. For 40 years, they wander in the desert. For 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. What is, what is it that's happening in these 40 years. Pete Enns is an Old Testament professor at Eastern University, and he writes in a commentary on this passage that during this time in the desert, God is testing the Israelites. Now, when we think of a test, most of us go to, to a time in school. Students, perhaps you have an exam coming up this week or had one this past week. We think of someone in authority who's waiting to pass judgment, to hand us down a grade, to let us know if, if we've met the standard of approval, if we passed or failed. But this, this is not the kind of testing that is going on in the desert. Enns writes, God tests his people for their benefit and not for his own. It's through passing and failing these tests that God's people learn the nature of the obedience that God requires of them. God is testing. God is letting them experience thirst and letting them experience hunger in order that they might grow. You see, God desires to be in relationship with them, and God is helping them to learn what it will look like to be in faithful relationship. The Israelites are they're learning to mute the voices of ego, the internal voices that say that they've got to go get their own because God is not going to provide, to mute those voices that say they've got to put their needs above their desire to be faithful to living how God would have them live, the voices that say they have to listen to their own narrow, muted perspective. God seeks to promote growth because what they're experiencing, this, this natural reaction they have, because this is the sin of all humanity. 
Friends, our wandering away from God is all rooted in some personal version of the same lie we all tell ourselves. It's that a life lived in faithful relationship to God will not fulfill us. It will not quench our thirst. In the beginning, Cain kills Abel because, because he wants God's attention and believes the only way to achieve that is by murdering the competition, believing that God's love is too small. It's the sin of David who sleeps with Bathsheba, giving in to his own desire for physical intimacy, believing that he will not experience fulfillment if he does not go take it. We make dishonest business decisions. We cheat our neighbors because we believe that that this is necessary to achieve material wealth or, or accolades that will finally give us the satisfaction that we don't believe a faithful life will give us. We reach for substances to numb pain that we feel because we do not believe that there is any other rescue available for us. We overeat because we're seeking to fill a void. We believe the pleasure of the moment will sate us. Or we compile a resume of just how good we are. Because we don't believe that God's salvific work was sufficient enough for us. Our sin, our failure to live as God desires, as God designed, is all grounded in this lie that a life lived faithful to God's will will not ultimately fulfill us. In our text today, God wants the Israelites to learn to rely on Him without the grumbling. They're undergoing a, a testing that's meant to form them so that reliance on God will become a natural way of being. Six or seven years ago, I, I began to make an effort to get into better physical shape. And at first, I addressed my eating habits. And, and after about five months, I became convinced that I, that I also needed to add some physical activity. Now, I had run cross-country in high school and did not enjoy it. But running seemed like the most dependable and, and accessible form of exercise. And so I ran. Actually, I began by walking, mostly, and running a little. And over time, that turned into running more and walking less. At the outset, the idea of, of running three miles felt like a huge, in fact, was a huge test of endurance. But over time, over months and years with continued practice and by continually testing myself, it has become a natural way of being. I love to run and I can't believe I'm saying that. <laughs> Friends, learning to be in relationship with God is the same. At first, it will feel unnatural. It will feel like a test, but it can and it will become a natural way of being a natural way of loving our neighbor and our enemies, of putting the will of God before our own. 
But what happens along the way? What happens along the way? Because I, I mentioned that this was not a test about approval or disapproval. So what happens in, in the midst of our failures? In the inevitable messes that we will make trying to figure it out? How does God respond to the Israelites grumbling? The Israelites grumble to Moses, and, and Moses goes to God, and Moses doesn't actually ask for water. What Moses says is, what shall I do with this people? Moses is exasperated. What does God do? God knows what they need. God provides water. About 10 years ago, I was on a trip with some of our students in youth ministry, and we were staying at the homes of, of um, church members at a, of a church that we were visiting out of town. And one of our seniors in high school, Jonathan, was his host brought he and, and the other students that were staying there um, some late-night snacks, brought him a plate of, of cookies and a couple of tall glasses of milk. And in the process of enjoying those snacks, they knocked the glass of milk over in the room and, and, and embarrassingly went to their host and said, we're so sorry, we've, we've spilled the milk everywhere, and, and then went back to the room and waited on the host to bring some, some towels to help clean up the mess. And the host returned, not with a towel, but with another glass of milk. Friends, in the same way, God responds to our messes, to our tendency to seek our own fulfillment, to believe the lie, by sending Jesus Christ. God returns with living water. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's not just cleaning up the mess. God wants our thirst to be quenched. And one day, one day, it all will be. Friends, we are the people of Israel now, wandering in the desert, caught between God's rescue in Jesus Christ and our arrival in the promised land one day, the time when God will restore all things, when all thirst will be quenched. And along the way, we are learning to be in faithful relationship with God. And we're going to get it wrong a lot along the way. Because anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. But there is a relationship that awaits us that is deeper, a life that is richer as we grow into the people God has created us to be. And it means enduring thirst of some kind. It means experiencing some hunger because the desert is an uncomfortable place. Can we be okay with that? Can we support each other in that because we are not in the desert alone? We, we are in the desert not only under the watchful eye of God, but also as the church with the people next to you 
in community as the rescued people of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.